Good evening. My name is Lee Silver, and I am the uh, chair of the Public Lectures Committee, and it's my great pleasure and honor to welcome and to introduce Mike Gazaniga for tonight's lecture. Uh, this lecture is the Lewis Clark Vanuxum Lecture of the class of 1879, and uh, Lewis Clark Vanuxum, uh, in his will, bequested $25,000, this is in 1912, to Princeton University. Uh, to be used for a series of public lectures before the university annually on subjects of scientific interest. Provision is made for publication. We don't have to worry about that. Of the, uh, of the lectures, previous lecturers in the series have included uh, Edwin Hubble, who gave his name to the Hubble Telescope, Thomas Mann, uh, Ralph Ellison, and Carl Sagan uh, were the previous lecturers, among others, um, in this um, series. Uh, professor Gazaniga is the uh, David McLaughlin Distinguished University Professor at Dartmouth, where he's also director of the Center for Cognitive Neuroscience. He received his Ph.D. in 1964 in psychobiology from California Institute of Technology. Um, he's had a long and distinguished career publishing um, many books, including a new book that is due out uh, later in the month. I have a pre a publication copy here called The Ethical Brain. Um, he is, uh, he's published the Cognitive Neurosciences uh, Compendium, which is, uh, I don't know how many thousands of pages it is, but it's basically the, the Bible for anybody who wants to uh, learn anything about uh, the cognitive um, sciences. Uh, he, he founded the Neuroscience Institute and the Journal of Cognitive Neuroscience, and he's currently or will soon be the president of the American Psychological Society. Uh, he has so many honors uh, that it's, uh, it's, uh, it's hard to actually look at them all. Uh, it's really fantastic. And um, he's, uh, he's a rare individual because he's had uh, two seminal contributions, I believe. Um, one is in the, um, in the area of science, understanding of the human brain and consciousness. And he will tell us more about that this evening. But he's also somebody who's had a, uh, is a really unique person for an entirely unrelated reason, uh, which I don't think he will talk to us about tonight, so I will tell you about. In 2002, he was asked to serve on President Bush's Council on Bioethics, and as a good public citizen, he agreed. And over the following years, he spent many hours trying to enlighten other members of the Council on intricacies of embryonic development and the biological basis for mentality. Nevertheless, when the Council issued its first report, they ignored biology, arguing instead on the basis of ideology. And alone among the dissenting members of the, uh, of the Council, Professor Gazanica had the courage to stand up and challenge the dishonesty and immorality of the political regime currently in power in this country. And so without further ado... Without further ado, Professor Zipan. Thank you very I'm not quite sure I did that, but uh, uh, take what you can get. <laughs> Let's see. Um, thank you, Professor Silver. Uh, it, it's really my pleasure. It's my honor to be here. Uh, I was last at uh, Princeton 15 years ago as a guest of George Miller, who I'm delighted to say is here tonight. Uh, at his lab, and we were at the time hatching the field of cognitive neuroscience, and we hatched it right here in, in Green Hall, and it continues today, as you know, very strong, and uh, it, in fact, some of the work I'll be talking to you tonight emanates from uh, that, those laboratories because I think there's some really groundbreaking research going on there. What I've, what I, what's happened to me, what, there's a dirty trick played on me, basically. Uh, you're, you live your life doing neuroscience and uh, studying the brain, and it's really a great life. Uh, who, how many of you get to say that you can't wait to get to work in the morning? Uh, that's the case for those of us who are in uh, research and scientific discovery. And uh, it's very exciting indeed. And then somebody says, well, why don't you worry about the bioethical issues involved? And you go, huh? <laughs> what? I've never done that before. 
And uh, in fact, in 1960, when the field of bioethics was born, according to Al Johnson, at a conference actually at Dartmouth, uh, the questions were very medically oriented, whether you, how you should spend your resources in the medical community, how you should say who gets on a transplant list, and, and other very important questions. And it was started by forward-looking biologist Theodore Dobijansky was there and others. Uh, the ethical questions most students were thinking about in those days uh, were, you know, can I date two people at the same time? It, it really, they weren't deep, they weren't profound, and they weren't uh, enhanced by any kind of uh, data. In 1965, or in, 19, in 2005, you, you can't pick up the New York Times without, uh, without seeing on the front page at least four or five issues that speak to ethical concerns we have in our culture, and that, unlike 1960, are enlightened by data that exists from science and from other sources. And so you, the students here, more than, than my generation, you don't have any choice. You have to think about the ethical issues that confront, confront us. And what are they? There, there's, there, I'm going to list some of these, and I'm only going to talk about the last two because uh, it's just impossible to mention them all. But, of course, the stem cell and the cloning issue raises the question of the moral status of the embryo. When do you want to confer moral status on the embryo? At what point uh, do you want to call the thing growing in a uterus one of us as opposed to uh, just a simple entity? That is a tough question. There's lots of thinking on it. I think neuroscience informs how to think, think about that. There's the issue of pregenetic diagnosis. Do you really, how far do you want to go in using IVF and, and using various gene assays to pick the, the nature of uh, your child? I tell the story that, uh, you know, imagine the story that two Yaleys are deciding to have children and should they use pregenetic diagnosis? After all, they didn't get into Harvard. I mean, how far are you going to push this sort of thing? That's a very big, important issue. And as little as two years ago, no one thought that you could be able to use uh, these techniques to actually s select in a pregenetic setting. And, uh, and within the last two years, uh, Francis Collins has already gone around, who's head of the genome, is showing ways that in which probably we, we are going to be able to select for polygenetic traits uh, within 10 years. These are your problems. These are your issues. Uh, memory enhancers, memory erasers. Uh, is it how many of you took the SAT test on Ritalin? Raise your hand. Well, you bumped your point, your score up 125 points. Is that fair? Uh, how many of you want to erase memories? Uh, I, I have a couple of years I'd like to get rid of. Uh, that's now possible. That that's going to happen, and and that has tremendous uh, implications and and is of ethical concern. And the, the, the smart drugs, the actual drugs that may help you in, in your computational skills are on the, on the drawing board. The question that besets the legal and neuroscience community is that as we move towards a more physical and mechanistic understanding of the brain, how should that be in, uh, used in the courtroom and, and used for exculpability, uh, show, show why uh, the brain did it, not Jimmy? when he killed uh, Susie and that sort of thing. Uh, uh, the one we've just all been through, aging, brain dead versus person dead. Uh, when do you declare someone <clears throat> that is still alive and still has brain tissue pumping away but is mentally uh, uh, gone? Uh, this, this is an issue uh, that is going to become intensely, intensely important as our uh, demanding population grows at the rate it's growing. The issues of cognitive privacy, all the, tre the techniques we have for uh, possibly peeking into your brain and seeing what you really think as opposed to what you say you're thinking, uh, is that an invasion of uh, your rights? Uh, personal identity and beliefs is what we want to get to tonight. Uh, why is it, on the one hand, uh, we, we should come to learn how we develop our own personal identity and we develop our own set of beliefs and while, on the other hand, we uh, uh, are so involved in uh, social processes uh, that uh, are leading, uh, I think, ultimately, uh, there's going to be a neurobiology leading us to an understanding of universal ethics, that you can be able to 
spell out, as, you, as, as it were, a brain-based philosophy of life for why you, you have a set of moral actions and moral uh, sentiments. Now, I'm having a little fun with this slide. Uh, this is uh, my uh, son, uh, Zachary, who uh, the bad news for Princeton is that he's, he's going to row for Brown next year. Uh, the good news for, for Princeton is this is Lizzie, and she's coming here to dance, and she dances like an angel. So uh, we'll see how that plays out. But the real point of the slide... Uh, <coughs> <laughs> The real point of the slide is to make a point, and it's an obvious point, but but we don't think about it enough. And the point is the following. The game is the following. If you were to go home tonight and write down every thought you had in the last 48 hours, what you what's been on your mind, what are you thinking about, and you look at the list at the end of that exercise, you will discover probably that 95 to 98% of it has to do with other people. It doesn't have anything to do with you at all. It has to do with your interactions with other people. You live in a social world. If you just were the only person on earth, half of the things that you have been concerned with for the last 48 hours wouldn't be issues because there's no one else to have the issue with. And so while we're trying to figure out why we developed this uh, personal uh, Identity, it's in a sense what we really, really need to understand is how we interact with other people and how is that process uh, work. And, and in general, I'm here to remind you that it works well. It works well. How does that come about? Well, what's coming about is that there's a scientific neurobiology, psychology, cognitive science, there's all kinds of fields uh, that are playing in this game. That, uh, uh, that are helping us to understand that. And what I want to do tonight is try to show you my idea about how I think we build up our personal identity, our sense of our own self, uh, through a mechanism that, that is possessed in your uh, left part of your brain. And then once that is built, how there is a set of emerging um, data that speaks to how we are able to socially compare ourselves with others. That's what you're doing all the time. You're socially comparing yourself to people all the time. You can't stop it. You can't turn it off. Uh, it's an observation that all the social psychologists know, one we forget. Uh, but now what's happening is neurobiology is, uh, is showing ways that maybe how that works. How, how are we able to actually navigate our way through a complex a social scene? And the words that you'll hear are mirroring mechanisms that you actually get in the other person's mind and, and feel it in your own. And you'll hear of actually another set of phenomena that we'll call universals that it, we're, we're all dispossessed certain tendencies, certain morals, because they're all built into the human genome, no matter uh, uh, who you are. We're, there are only 5,000 generations between you, everybody in this room, and and the time when there were only 10,000 people on Earth. So it's not a long uh, period. So here's how I'm going to put it. <clears throat> Where is the little person in your brain that seems to call the shots? We all think that. We don't really think we're automized brains that, that the neuroscientist has taught us such a mechanistic story uh, and unearthed such a mechanistic uh, claim that, that we're automatons. But so where, where are the little, where, where, who's the little person? The homunculus puzzle, it's called in the business. Just as mysteriously, though, and just to give it a contrast, what is the cellular mechanism that unleashes the trigger of gene expression? Actually, no one actually knows that. That's a hard, really hard question in biology. But you don't worry about it in biology. You, you just keep studying it, and they find out all kinds of things that affect gene expression and the things that affect, 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 that affect the gene expression, and so on. But we, for some reason, uh, have a real problem with it. Uh, in short, how come we feel personal identity and apparent agency even though modern neuroscience tells us our brains, like our genes, are running automatically? Why is it we don't feel like automatons and zombies? And should the realities that we are probably determined systems make us feel badly about our social relationships, our sense of personal responsibility alike? And I say no, and I'll tell you why. But what I want to do is try to show uh, how it is and why 
we uh, develop the sense that we're in control even when we're not, and then how that leads to uh, personal identity. And this has been going on for a long time. If you look at the if you look at the modern history of the world, and Copernicus uh, sort of set us straight on what was the center of the universe, and Galileo's measurements kind of nailed it down. And then uh, uh, Rene Descartes comes along and says, you know what, there are laws in biology, there's laws for pulmonary physiology, there's laws for the liver, and there's probably going to be laws for the brain. And one more blow against man is uh, the special deal. Uh, uh, and then Charles Darwin with the evolution theory and Sigmund Freud comes along and say it's all being computed subconsciously and uh, you really don't have access to it and it gets done for you. And then bingo, modern neuroscience. So we're moving down this path and everybody is being told that we are coming to a greater and greater understanding of the mechanistic nature of the human brain. And we are. That's just the deal. We are. Someday, somewhere, somehow, someone is going to figure out how the damn thing works. <laughs> now, given that, given that we're moving towards a, an automated of a, of a view of, of the mechanistic brain that, it's, that it is automatic, and given that we accept that in, in gene uh, uh, function already, uh, why is it, why is it that doesn't matter. We, we don't believe it. We think we're in charge. We still think we're in there pulling the levers, right? We're calling the shots. We ate pizza and not the hamburger because we chose and all the rest of it. And to some extent... Oh, jeez, I'm sorry about that. <laughs> some extent, it is clear that no matter what your belief about the nature of the world is, we are all dualists. And what I mean by that is, I don't mean that in the traditional uh, mental uh, jargon talk. What, I'll, what I mean by that is when one person is talking to another person, you don't really think you're talking to their brain. You're talking to the Susie, Betty, Billy. You're talking to your professor. You're talking to your mother. You're talking to your father. They're talking to you. It's not one brain's talking to another brain. And so we've already transformed and said there is this, there is this thing. There is this person. There is this other identity. And it's different. We don't have reason to believe that chimps worry about this. Uh, the, some of these points are arguable, but some of them aren't. They have no history, no culture. They never teach uh, their buddy anything. They don't have a theory about the other chimp. Uh, Endel Tulling makes the stronger claim that they don't even have episodic memory. So what is it about us? How come we have something different? And uh, there, are philosoph there are philosophers who have thought about this a lot. And I list three here who I've recently had occasion to uh, to uh, meet with, meet and and discuss their view. And uh, it's uh, it's uh, Mariah Sheckman kind of says, well, what you are are uh, to put it in a kind of a way to, for you to remember it. Our, our persons are stories. They 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 run the narrative of their life. They take their past experience and update it all the time. And there's certainly got to be truth to that. Carol Rovain says persons are plans, components of agendas come together, and they have to come together in a rational way, and you analyze a person on the basis of whether that's occurring. And John Perry, the philosopher at Berkeley, or at Stanford, uh, uh, says we're more of a tap tapestry, beliefs, goals, habits, and traits of character all just exist in a pattern, and when you're looking at somebody, you assess them with those sort of independent uh, ideas in mind. So what I'm going to say is that Basically, these three philosophers suggest that what makes somebody a person is that it views itself as a unified and some related, in some way related to a narrative and rational coherence. And I'm going to tell you that there's something in your brain that does that for you, the left brain interpreter. And then the second step, so I'm going to first establish that, and then the second step is to see, see how we see this playing out and how we are successful in interacting in what we do 95% of the time, which is have social exchange. So, uh, and, and that's through something that we're going to call, and you'll learn, it's called the, mir the mirroring process. So, here we go. Now, to be current and to just nail this point down, here is the famous uh, uh, robot at MIT called COG. It's been worked on, uh, worked on for years by Rodney Brooks, and every year he gets more human-like. But the one feature that, that 
is compelling about COG is when they put two eyeballs on it and a little sensor feedback mechanism such that when you walk into the room, it just starts track, tracking you. So that's a simple little loop. It's trivial to build. But the what it unleashes in the person, anybody walking into the room, uh, is this horrible sense that <laughs> that, that thing's real. And uh, an agency from you is immediately conferred to this hunk of steel. And then as it tracks you, as you look away or walk away, and its eyeballs come back, it exists in your mind very much that this, is, uh, this thing has agency. Dan Dennett has written beautifully on this uh, uh, sensation uh, of, of what happens. So you, you throw out something on the world as a, in a theory about that. They do something to trigger and reinforces that theory, and it exists in your mind. And I would argue that probably that is what existed here, in that the, there was no denying a mother uh, conferring on her daughter, her, her loved daughter, uh, a, a theory about uh, her agency remains, and, and then it was reinforced and so forth. So that's the kind of complex thing we, we want to try to untangle. So we do it, in my case, by testing patients who have had their brains divided. Uh, these are called split-brain patients, and you see that in this cartoon uh, how it works. Uh, a patient, uh, you, uh, everyone, <laughs> I won't call you patients, everybody here has a couple of hemispheres connected by a thing called the corpus callosum. What happens in, uh, in certain cases, uh, certain cases of uh, people who have uncontrolled epilepsy, is that their brain is severed in two, the corpus callosum is sectioned, and what that leaves you with is a dominant left hemisphere with speech and language that can, can talk about everything that's happening to the right of the fixation point, and the right hemisphere can no longer talk about items held in the left hand. So the left brain can no longer uh, talk to the right. And um, we worked this out over a number of years, and finally, about 20 years into the research project, uh, uh, Joel Ledoux and I, uh, we're, came up with a bright idea. Why don't we ask the patients what they think about this? And uh, we've been doing all these studies and showing how the left brain didn't know what the right was doing, the right didn't know what the left was doing, the left was smart and the right was dumb and, and all that kind of stuff. But well, what's the patient think about this? Because we can be pretty clever. We can trick the right brain to do behaviors and then the, really the left hemisphere doesn't know why the behavior was actually carried out. But then why don't we ask the left hemisphere what it thinks about that trick? So here's what we did. We took a split brain patient, patient talks out of the left brain, uh, patient fixates a point, and that means this uh, chicken claw only gets projected to the uh, left hemisphere, which is the talking hemisphere. At the same time, you flash the uh, snow scene over in the left visual field that goes to the right hemisphere, the right hemisphere can pick the appropriate uh, uh, answer in this nonverbal test. There's no really spoken response here. They just, the hands have to pick the, the most related items. So the right hemisphere, left hand picks the shovel because it goes with the snow scene. And the uh, right hand, uh, left hemisphere picks the chicken because it goes with a claw. So the patient's responding, just like you see in the cartoon. And you say, Paul, why did you do that? The patient's sitting there pointing at these two things. And Paul says, oh, that's easy, from the left hemisphere. The chicken claw goes with the chicken, and you need a shovel to clean out the chicken shed. <laughs> so so immediately, immediately constructs a story that's consistent with the cognitive science of why this hand did something, when in fact we know why. We snuck this little thing into the right hemisphere. So we call this, this left hemisphere uh, thing uh, the interpreter. And, um, and we see here, here's another example of it in another patient. And let's see if this works. Again, Joe sees two words simultaneously. He sure does. Uh, that's another example, all right? Can, you, can the sound guy do anything about that? No? Let's try it one more time. 
kind of a cute example. Whoop. Oh, forget it. <laughs> That's another example. Same thing. Left, left hemisphere makes up a story about uh, an action that we triggered from the right hemisphere to the silent right hemisphere. Well, in the last few years, my colleague uh, uh, George Wolford and I just did a simple test that sort of brings this out, that there's something about the left hemisphere that weaves stories, tells, tries to make sense out of the behavior, the plan, uh, the, the behavior, the feelings of, of a person. And we could reveal it by a very simple test, and it goes like this. If I ask you to fixate a point and then ask you to guess whether a light comes above or below the fixated point, uh, what, what, what you tend to, and we rig it so that actually the light comes up uh, above the fixated point uh, 80% of the time. What you do as smart uh, people is you do a probability match and you try to figure out the code. You try to figure out the sequence. You're not gonna, you're not gonna be a rat and just simply always pick the top button. If you did always pick the top button, you'd be rewarded 80% of the time. But you try to figure out the pattern, and then what happens is you score about 68% correct. And uh, it costs a lot of money to uh, have you do that, going being sent off to Princeton, and, and you still get 68%. So the, the left hemisphere, we do this in split-brain patients, and, of course, the left hemisphere, which is the thinking, planning, hypothesizing, what's, what's going on here, hemisphere uh, scores 68%, and the right hemisphere acts like a rat and scores 80%. So <clears throat> there's something in this deeply seated in, in this uh, left hemisphere and in this interpreter. And an experiment done many years ago in social psychology, one of my favorites, really really lets you see kind of how, how strongly this interpreter is. It was done by uh, Bob uh, Kleck and, uh, and Chris Strenta. And uh, they were trying to look at the issue of how people responded should someone have a deformity, some sort of uh, abnormality. And what they did was they took normal Dartmouth uh, sophomores and they put a big glob on their cheek. And they said, now, listen, this, uh, this is, you know, looks so good right now. And uh, we're going to have you interview uh, people, and we want you to note how you're being treated given that you have this, uh, let's call it a handicap. And we want you to, because we're trying to understand uh, this whole phenomenon. So the students say yes, and it's fine. And then just before they go in, they, they actually uh, they say, we, we have to put a little shellac on this thing so it doesn't drip off during the interview. That'd be kind of ugly. And uh, so the student understands that. And then what they actually do is wipe the whole thing clean. Student doesn't know it. There's actually nothing on their cheek. So they, then they go in for the interview. Every student comes out 20 minutes later. Whoa, I had no idea how people were treated. <laughs> Little thing. That experiments really it's, yeah, oh, it's terrible. In a way, it's unbelievable. And well we, the experimenter says, Well, we actually took a video of the of the student you were interviewing and we want to show it to you now and could you just hit the button every time they're giving some kind of uh, behavior that you think is discriminatory. So, yeah, absolutely. Tape starts up about a second. Boom, stop, look, right there. See that? <laughs> Eyes diverted to the left. Uh, that's, that's the deal. So, so here, here, we do this. We do this all the time. Here, it's been into a faculty meeting. And the, the person nods and looks out the window at a funny time. You're convinced that's it. They've, they've gone over to the other side and so forth and so forth. <laughs> So, so it's very strong. The point of it is, is a very, this thing is just working all the time, trying to spin a story, trying to do get it. And it's dealing with our feelings. As our feelings change, as we get impulsive, uh, uh, well-known cases, if you have uh, uh, anxiety attacks, uh, what happens is uh, you immediately map a theory on the restaurant you're at or the crowd you're in. Uh, because you, this, this, this must be the stimulus that triggers this horrible sensation. And then you develop a phobia for the restaurant after they cure you of your anxiety attack. And your theory remains because you're trying to give meaning to f different felt states, and on and on and on. So it's a very strong phenomenon. And 
This interpreter can only be as good as the data it gets. So you can see it behave in very strange ways. And it has a, uh, and there's a, there's a brain organization side to it too, as it collects information from throughout the, the, the brain, the cortical array. And the first point is that you can monkey with it, uh, in, I can monkey with it in you. I can make this, your interpreter do some funny things. And one of them is, uh, made apparent from, uh, uh, uh for, for me when uh, I was put in a lab in, in, in California that has a very good virtual uh, reality system, virtual goggles. And these are uh, basically goggles that you put on. You're in a, you're in a lab at the University of California. You got this, these goggles on, you're tethered up to the computer, you got some snickering graduate student running the thing, uh, the whole scene, you know where you are, you know. And then they turn on. And you see the room, not directly, but through the, the lenses. And then they start monkeying with what's in the room uh, through the lenses. And you're sort of walking down the lab. And, and again, at a meta level, you know it's a concrete floor in a psychophysical lab. But electronically, they suddenly open up a hole in the floor. And you jump back. Your heart rate goes up. You just almost die. <laughs> and, and then you sort of, and you hear that everybody's having a great fun with you uh, uh, over in the corner. And then they put a, they put a gangplank across the hole. And they say, all right, now just walk the gangplank. <laughs> it was electronic gangplank. So, of course, you won't. No way I was going to walk across that thing. <laughs> and, uh, and on and on and on. It goes like, your, your, your brain's been hijacked. Your interpreter, which is dealing with all the information that's coming from, has just been artificially uh, hijacked by this, this system. And it comes up with uh, a whole theory that really makes no sense, but you, 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 you deeply believe it at the time. And the thought occurred to me that that's kind of really good because, I mean, when you're on an airplane, <laughs> You're really in an aluminum tube flying 600 miles an hour, uh, 35,000 feet in the air, and uh, you're sitting there having a cup of coffee like everything is normal. How can that be normal? It's very weird. And, uh, and yet your, your brain has brought it in and, and, and made it. So it's a very powerful thing. So, uh, secondly, the, the, the interpreter is... is uh, is pulling in in the real, in, in the brain setting now, we go back to a, sort of a neuroscience setting, is pulling in information from all over the brain and then it gives it a, a spin. Here we have the most, most amazing thing. We have two split brain patients. This is JW, this is VP, and they're being interviewed by a, a colleague, uh, Alan Kingston. And we're trying to, these are two people that have had the left brain disconnected from the right, okay? And they've tested regularly, all the time. And uh, uh, you would think that uh, if you're, it's even hard to imagine this. Let's say we, we split you. Now what that means is, when you think about it, is that uh, before surgery, and the doctor, uh, you're in the, your, your room, and the doctor comes in, and he looked at him, and you saw both sides of his face. And then he goes in and splits you. And the next morning, the doctor comes in, and you look at him, you only see half of his face. You would think you'd say, hey, doc, I can't see the other half of your face. What's going on here? Never, those words have never been uttered by a split brain patient. It's as if the disconnected right hemisphere, uh, the memories, the consciousness about that part of space is localized over there. And the left part of the brain, the one that's, still, that's talking to you, just doesn't care about it. So you find, in you, when you interview these patients, this very strange response. And here, do you guys ever, do you ever wonder why people want to film you guys? Or do you have any insights into why it's interesting to other people? I just I just figured it was just for further reasons. I didn't, yeah. I didn't know. Yeah. No, but I know. But why particularly? This type of operation was interesting. No, no, I was just wondering why. Yeah, you had an interest. Something that they do, of course. 
and so forth. There, there's no realization on the part of, of, of the patient that that there's something gone, there's something missing. And you realize when you go through a bunch of examples of this that the monitors and memories probably associated with a certain part of your conscious space are localized to that part of the brain. Why, why wouldn't you remember it? Why wouldn't you say, well, you know, I used to be able to see over here and I can't do that now. It's a very strange phenomenon. And it turns out there are other clinical examples. If you take a patient to the, this comes from a famous uh, uh, monograph of uh, Teuber, Battersby and, and, and Weinstein. Uh, gunshot wounds, the Second World War, this, this particular patient had a huge visual deficit, as you see here. Uh, obviously, a big part of his brain was damaged. Uh, and you compare the sort of psychological phenomenon of a patient that has a cortical lesion producing this huge blind spot versus the kind of patient that has a blind spot of this exact same time, but it's produced by a peripheral lesion, a lesion to your optic tract or an optic nerve. If you have this kind of lesion, you instantly notice that you have a blind spot and you complain to your physician. If you have this kind of lesion, in the early days, you don't complain because the monitors that would send this thing over to the interpreter are down as well, and the patients do not uh, complain about it. They come to learn that there's something wrong because they start bumping into things, but in the terms of the phenomenon, uh, uh, they do not. So the point here then is, uh, in the larger picture, I guess I finally killed this thing. Uh, oh, here we go. Uh, that we're collecting information and we have local monitors for all kinds of stuff. I'm just, I'm racing through this and giving you examples from the sensory sphere, but there's, there's issues with respect to faces, there's issues with respect to various kinds of emotional monitoring. All kinds of things are going on throughout out, out the brain. And if they're disturbed, the interpreter just has, takes it into its account of what the, what the nature of the world is. And finally, on this brain point, what we forget is how much of our brain is the communication uh, wired. Uh, we, if you look at a cross-section, an MR brain, an MR of a human brain, all you see is white matter, white matter, white matter. Everybody's trying to tell everybody what's going on. You look at the white matter connections of a rat, they're trivial by comparison. We are constantly trying to update ourselves on the local activities throughout the brain. So what we got here, what's the argument? Left hemisphere-based interpreter, it constructs our personal identity, it keeps this narrative going that all those philosophers want, puts our story together. Our, our identity depends on the data supplied to it, so normally it's the data of life and that person's own personal experience. It can become bizarre and normal, some kinds of hyper-normal situations, they can become bizarre with neurologic disease, which we really didn't get into. But now we get the stage set. We've got this thing. We've got your story. We've got your personality. Now comes the part where we're trying to see how it interacts and how you interact with others. How do we, how do we connect all this effort that's gone into thinking about how you develop your own personal narrative, your identity, uh, with others? And we're going to talk about two things. We're going to talk about universals, maybe properties that we all have, as I said earlier, and then we're going to talk about uh, what was going to be known as the mirroring process. So first, the universals. And this is the work that, uh, in, to my lights, uh, is one of the most exciting pieces of work that's come out of neurobiology and, and social psychology in a long time, and it came out of... Uh, the primary work came out of Princeton uh, with uh, John, uh, Jonathan Cohen, Joshua Green, and others. And uh, it is a piece of work that is, what it really does is show you that these questions that people used to argue about endlessly can now be studied in a uh, scientific manner and real data from a scientific analysis can be brought to bear on the, some of these great and grand issues. And the great and grand issue is, is there a common moral spark? Is there a common moral response in our species? And so let, let me just put it this way. The challenge of modern human is to try to identify whether our highly evolved underlying human nature and culture benefit from a universal ethic, a moral response to life's challenges that has been in place for our species from the beginning. The question is, 
Do we have an innate moral sense as a species? And if so, can we recognize and accept it on its own terms? Is it not a good idea to kill because it's not a good idea to kill, not because God or Allah or Buddha or someone else said it was not a good idea to kill? Is there something in us that draws us back from the edge? And contrary to the news every night, most people in the world don't go around killing each other. It's a very, 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 very small number. So what is this? What brings us back? Well, to set up the Cohen and, uh, and Green experiment, I'll kind of jump ahead and, and give a result from, uh, that, that looks at the universality question. How universal are, is a moral reasoning test? Uh, how, how universal is the response of peoples of the world throughout, the cult, throughout cultures? And this is a recent study by Mark Hauser and colleagues at, uh, at Harvard. And he has a, he's done a very clever thing, and, and I've reduced this down for purposes of uh, uh, lecturing and, and simplicity. But he, he, he basically presented to the people of the world a couple questions. and wanted to know how they would respond. These are all cultures, all ages, young, old, all religious beliefs, all this, all that. And basically, the answer is they all behaved the same way. So the first problem was, if you read this, is uh, these are well known to some of you, so forgive me, but for those of you who don't know these things, they're very interesting. Denise is a passenger on a train whose driver has fainted. On the main track ahead are five people. The main track has a side track leading off to the right, and Denise can turn the train onto it. There is one person on the right-hand track. Denise can turn the train, killing the one, or she can refrain from turning the train, letting the five die. Is it okay to turn the train? 89% of the people will say, absolutely. Turn the train, save it. Now you change the problem. Frank is on a footbridge over the train. He sees a train approaching the bridge out of control. There are five people on the track. Frank knows that the only way to stop the train is to drop a heavy weight onto the path, but the only available sufficiently heavy weight is a large man also watching the train from the footbridge. Frank can shove the man onto the track in the path of the train, killing him, or he can refrain from doing this, letting the five die. So same number of people die or live, depending on, is this permissible? Boom, 11% of the people will say, yeah, I said, you can do it. 89% say, no, you can't do that. So this is intriguing. Now, uh, when you're in the field of moral philosophy, uh, uh, it is a complex field, and these two simple little A-B problems here can be dissected out into uh, a million ways. And they, people are doing this now and collecting the data, uh, and, but this theme comes up that the percentages remain remarkably the same throughout the world, throughout the culture. And what's interesting, throughout various cultures and ages and, and all the rest. And what's interesting in Hauser's analysis, given these numbers is the story as to why the person said do it or don't do it was all over the map. So dependent on issues that weren't under experimental control. There wasn't, you would think that if 89% of the people in the world do it, you would think they'd all have some kind of common rationale reason as to why it was true. No, their behavior is 89%, but their theory as to why they didn't do it uh, and I would predict this from my interpreter, is, is all over the place. So here's, here's really the, the experiment that was done before Mark's, Mark went out to look for the universality. It is the classic experiment done here at Princeton, where uh, uh, Cohen and Green showed that in the case where the fat man is going to be pushed or not, why don't people go for that one? And all of a sudden they find in the, in the brain imaging environment that the amygdala of the brain lights up the part that's, in, that's very heavily involved in emotion and fear processing and, and the like. So there was a reason. There's a, there's, there's a built-in, there's something in there that says that you don't do, and it puts the brakes uh, on a piece of, uh, on a, on a uh, possible uh, piece of behavior. And once you see that, once you can begin to imagine that there are scenarios that our species simply does not engage in, then you can imagine 
the theories get built as to why. They evolve through cultures and various religious belief systems, and they finally hammer them out to maybe a, a particular view. But underlying, underlying it all, could it be that there is this thing that's, that's just the way uh, we're built? I can show you a baby example of, of this. Uh, this is from a, uh, a classic piece of footage, footage. This is one of the very first split-brain cases in California where we, would, we manipulated emotion. Instead of one of these things that I'm saying may be built in uh, through evolution, we manipulated this. We, we, we made the right hemisphere laugh. And then after we made the right hemisphere laugh, we asked the patient, why are you laughing? And we watched her make up a story. So what we did is, uh, here's case NG. She's trying to name things in the left visual field. She says she didn't see anything because that goes to the right hemisphere. She's bored. And then we flip in a picture of a, a nude. She used to be funny. And what did you see? Nothing, she said. And she's laughing, having a good time. And you say to her, why are you laughing? She says, oh, that's a funny machine you guys got there. You, you, uh, you come up here, you know, every time you put the tape in a different place. And, you know, some, some, some story. So there's, there's, could it be for these things that we know that the species doesn't like to do a lot, doesn't like to cheat, doesn't like incest, doesn't like lying, doesn't like killing. Are there things in there that, that change the felt state of the body that then upon which a theory, a moral theory and belief system arises? So that's point one. Point two, and point two then would be, and the final point here would be to go through the modern data. Well, how do we, how do we really navigate in the social world? How do we, how do we really begin to feel what other people are feeling and begin to relate to them so we can, we can judge them and, and be judged by them and be cooperative uh, in particular ways? And in recent years, in very recent years, there's been a big interest in what is called uh, mirroring, uh, spurned on by the neurophysiological work of an Italian neurophysiologist, uh, Giacomo Rezzolatti, and basically what he shows is that you take, a, you record from a particular part of a monkey brain now, and when the monkey makes a particular face, sees a particular expression of a monkey, this one, this kind of snooty one, neurons fire in a particular way, okay? And they also fire in a particular way if the same face is made by a human. A human person makes same. If it makes a, another kind of face, these neurons don't fire. So here's an interspecies mirroring. People now say, well, there's this, this is a very powerful phenomenon. It's been kind of known in many circles uh, in psychology that what we do when we're in a room or, or interacting with someone socially is we begin to take on their expression so that we can, what, feel how they feel, so we can come to understand the what they're feeling when they're talking to us. And these are uh, studies done where a picture like this is shown, and here's a girl watching the picture, and through time you see her gradually just adopt the, the actual physical posture uh, of the person. And in, and in that, in disgust, and in that, becomes, becomes aware of the felt and nature of the other person's feeling. In an experiment just completed by uh, Andy Meltzoff and, and John Decity at, at University of Washington, you see this even more clearly. What they first did was uh, study in a brain imaging environment the circuits involved in pain. And so they had some tests where they could crank the pain up on somebody's hand or something. And so it was light pain, middle, medium pain, lots of pain. And they find uh, a graded response uh, of, of this uh, set of structures in the brain. Very, very real, very solid, uh, and the, sort of the baseline. Then what they did is put another group of patients or subjects in the scanner. And all that group did was see a video of someone else getting the pain. Right? So they see someone else getting a little pain or a lot of pain. They're, they're having no pain. They're experiencing no pain themselves. 
but their own pain, the exact same pain circuits, lit up and in the graded way that they did uh, when they were actually experiencing pain. So Bill Clinton was right. He did feel your pain. <laughs> the, the notion is how you understand the felt state of others while they're expressing something is that your own me mechanisms are active and it must help in the social interaction. And finally, <clears throat> a study going on in our lab where we're trying to read the intentions of other, is there a mirroring system for facial expressions? And so wh what you do is you show a series of faces uh, to people in an MR setting and versus, say, a, a, co a copying, a, imitating a facial expression versus imitating a hand movement. And what you get is you get the selected areas for the hand imitation, selected areas for face imitation, overlap, and, and this is just sort of a background. The real, the real finding is that in where you, fate, where you try to imitate the face, you get well-known areas lit up that are associated with facial process, processing. But when you simply passively watch the stimuli, the mirroring system seems to be working. You're not doing anything, you're placid, you're, you're not responding, but in your brain, you're beginning to mirror the, the, uh, the facial expression of the other person. So there, this and another group of studies saying that when you're having empathetic, there's a whole other set of studies, when you're having empathetic reactions, your own reward circuits are being activated. When you're trying to understand someone else's thought, you, a big part of it, other than the cognitive part of it, is what they're feeling. And is it that you map onto yourself what they are experiencing, and through that you understand the real communication uh, of the moment? So that's a, that's a long, long way to come in this amount of time. But what I, I, what I want to leave the students with is the notion that... Uh, that the, these issues are no longer dorm room, midnight bull sessions about the meaning of life, that uh, you can go study it, and you can go see why you believe what you believe, what, what is the underlying neuroscience when it's present, when it, sometimes it's not. Uh, and when you go to argue about the various social positions that will be presented to you, uh, you will have... Um, you will have scientific data. I was struck by this picture last week in the mirroring. This is the Pope's private secretary. Do you not think this man didn't understand that man? It's, it's quite amazing. So, I'll leave you with the, the one thought that Galileo, I love this. Truth is the child of time, not of authority. Our ignorance is infinite. Let's whittle away just one cubic millimeter why should we still want to be so clever when at long last we have a chance of being a little less stupid? So I leave the Princeton student with that charge. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, Professor Gazaniga will take some questions from the audience, and there are roving microphones. There's a microphone up there, and there's another microphone over here. So if you'd like to ask a question, wait for the microphone to uh, come before you speak. Thank you, Professor. Um, has there been any research on this concept of uh, projection? Can, can that be validated through scientific means? People projecting their own emotions or their own yep. uh, ideas or expectations like paternal figures onto partners, friends, bosses. I'm, I'm sorry. I, I didn't get the question. I got the – would you say it one, one more time? As you were presenting the the concept of the self and uh, the interpretive self, yeah. there is this idea in psychology of projection, the transference. Right. Uh, has that been validated right. through scientific means? Well, I, I would say the, there's a large uh, a theoretical and and uh, some extent experimental literature on that. But what I find 
I guess for me, given my background, what I find you begin to pick this up in actual brain imaging environments where you can actually see it, that it become it takes on a reality and a a, a um, an urgency to the, to theories that wouldn't otherwise be there, for, uh, because it, it, it it's a reproducible biological event that you can see that that's how it seems to be working, and uh, I, I think that just adds whatever your, whatever argument you're making, whatever position you you have, that adds gravity to it. Um, two questions. Uh, the first one, what is the psychological basis that, or the neuroscientific basis that restricts um, the, what was it termed, um, the interpreter to being only the left half of the brain? Could the right half of the brain also act as an interpreter? Yeah. The, the, we've, tried to, we've tried to get uh, interpretive uh, responses from the right, and how you do that uh, through one test, to give an example, it fails the test. But how we tried was, we would show pictures of a story, of say 40 40 slide story, uh, someone getting up in the morning and what have you, and going to work, and and then two hours later, you bring these uh, uh, people back, and you uh, test them for whether they uh, actually saw the slide, or whether they saw a related slide, or whether they saw an unrelated slide. And the, you and me, when we're given this test, uh, we kind of get the gist of the story and related items that we didn't actually see, we throw in there and say, yeah, we saw them because it's, it's much more. Left hemisphere does that, right hemisphere doesn't do that. It just tells you what it saw and it doesn't embellish on it and fill in and allow for this other behavior. So that's how we get it. Now, I think the right hemisphere does have a different kind of interpreter. I think it has a some kind of... Uh, visual interpreter because it's much better at perceptual grouping ta- uh, tasks, it's much better at uh, fi- uh, figure ground tasks, and there's a whole set of things it can do better than the left, but, but not in this, uh, uh, not in this uh, uh, c- c- cognitive domain, I'll call it that. And uh, one more question. Um, can the mirroring function be applied to other senses, uh, hearing, smell? I, I, I think, sure. I don't know the experiments right now off the top of my head, but I think that's what is being discovered, is that these things exist all over the place. Uh, you brought up moral universals, but what about moral differences that perhaps out of environmental factors or genetic factors, people are hardwired with different moralities, perhaps irreconcilable ones. Is there any investigation into that? Let me, let me be really clear that this is all so new and young that almost any follow-up question you want to think of is a good idea for an experiment. <laughs> uh, so, uh, I mean, just on that point, one could imagine uh, that I mean, let's take this. That we know there's a genetic, there's a huge genetic uh, influence on temperament. Okay, so as you're growing up, you have temperament one versus temperament two. Every time you're thrown into a situation, because of that temperament, you tend to paint the picture as coming out one way versus another. Right, and then as you go through life, you're trying to, you're mirroring someone else's response. And you're mapping it onto what you think to be the way the world works because you've been doing this, you've been updating yourself every day. You might have a, a, a particular interpretation of what's going on in a social situation. And now let's say uh, that is different from your friend. Uh, and now let's say that you're, you have a pathologic uh, sort of uh, bias in your temperament. And then what you're trying to do when you interact socially is being mapped on you're trying to map that onto something that's really off the scale, and you can imagine that therefore there would be a social breakdown. I mean, all the, this is just all speculation, uh, but you can see how once you once you see that what you're trying to do is is map on other people's felt states onto your theories of the world that you've built up through your interpreter, you can see all the places where that could go, 
in terms of normal life and in, and in pathologies. Let's go to the right side of the brain. Uh, yeah, I was wondering how you'd respond to Dr. Gary Edelman's hypothesis that consciousness arises from non-localized neuronal group interactions, specifically uh, through the interactions of the re-entrant hypo or uh, thalmocortical core? Well, um, <laughs> um, I'm determined to understand his theory one of these days. So I, 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 I uh, can answer that. Uh, and without being flipped, though, um, I, th I also think that, and if, 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 if I had come and given a talk on brain and consciousness, I would try to po point out that I think the mechanism by which we become consciously aware of something is very local to the cortical region that is subserving the function that in question. So to wit, the left brain doesn't miss the right. Uh, it's kind of things. Uh, how, how can that be? Well, the consciousness about that brain must be enabled, being enabled over there, and it's just disconnected, so I can't know about it. And then you could go through many, many different examples of that sort of thing. So I think it is distributed. It's local to the circuits. It doesn't. Some, all this stuff doesn't happen, and then somehow go to the consciousness enabling center, and you're aware of it. I don't think that's how it works. Now, he has this re-entrant thing, which I just, I always get lost in. Somebody all the way back up there. Yeah. Yes. Wait, wait for the, uh, for the mic. Uh, does the left or, left or right handedness play a role in this? That was the question, yes. Yeah. Is there any difference? Most of the patients that have been tested in the split brain work are right-handed. There's one, one left-handed case, and... Uh, out in the early California series, and uh, uh, he, he wasn't a very testable patient, so I, I don't know where he would have fallen. Open the corridor. You mentioned that a lesion in the visual part of the brain causes uh, various dysfunctions in the way a person behaves. What's the lesion in the part of the brain that, the, as you call it, the left, uh, the left brain interpreter do to personality? Yeah. Where we know, uh, what we know at this point is it's in the left hemisphere. And where it is in the left hemisphere, uh, I don't know. Guesses, but I don't know. There are, if you have lesions to the left hemisphere, uh, and you become severely aphasic, one would say, well, are you interpreting the world still, or you just can't express the interpretation that was made, and the interpretation actually worked. Uh, all, all those kinds of issues are still uh, trying to be sorted out, and, and no one yet has come up with the right experiment in a brain imaging environment to try to suggest where the interpreter is, other than in the left hemisphere somehow. It might be a distributed circuit, and it might be a very, kind of, very hard thing to find, but uh, uh, so, so there's no, there's no lesion. Well, if we go over there to area 43, and pop that out. Interpretation stops. So that, that, that's not there. Okay, I think we'll have two more questions, and uh, before we allow uh, Professor Gazan to get to get some rest, um, one over on this side, and then one back here. Um, I, no, wow. I guess this is probably kind of related to the last question, but you were discussing how in split-brain patients, you know, when you show them two pictures, they tend to formulate a narrative that's of stuff only that is projecting onto their left hemisphere. And is there any thought that, I mean, just thinking about other things localized to the left hemisphere, is there any thought this ability to form narratives or form stories is somehow interrelated with the faculty of language? whether these are interrelated concepts. Well, it, sure, it would sure seem that language is uh, involved. Um, we, because we don't know, and it's, uh, we've kind of maintained that uh, it could be a separate function, and language is there to report out the result quickly in the same hemisphere. And you would think it would be proximate to language areas and so forth and so on. But... Uh, uh, to, to actually answer the question, I mean, is it language? Uh, 
is it the language system that's doing the interpreting? I, I kind of don't think so, but uh, it, it's arguable. Very definitely. Good question. Okay, one last question on this side. Um, right there? Yeah, go ahead. Wait for the mic. Thank you. Um, you described behaviors of people and selections, uh, moral decisions, ethical decisions that they made, and then I believe concluded that uh, ethicists and moralists explained the behavior on the basis uh, they constructed moral theories on the basis of certain kinds of intrinsic behavior. But I didn't understand how that intrinsic behavior developed in the first place. I assume that there's some kind of Darwinian thing whereby not killing people is basically a good idea for the survival of the species, but right. you didn't specify that. Am I correct in my assumption? Yeah, you, you, you said it better than I did. <laughs> I assume there's, there's, there's an evolutionary uh, argument. I, don't, I, don't, I haven't gotten there yet as to why, but uh, we're at the point where I, people are saying, look, maybe there are... My, here's my... Here's, let me answer this. In 10 years, there's going to be a book this thick, full of experiments that I think point out where things seem to be universal ethic, where, 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 universal moral responses, and where they don't. And you can just look it up. And, and, and you, so that leaves room for lots of moral theory, lots of moral issues, lots of law, lots of everything. But it will, the, the, the core responses for these things that seem to be universals, I bet you will be nailed down in various neural circuits as everybody has them. Okay, thank you very yeah, much for that. You. Very good Are we done? That's it. <laughs>